Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 10, as we follow along with today's lesson. Thessalonica was main, main highway. It was the center of a lot of traffic. Berea was a little hick town off the beaten track. And so uh, it was uh, sort of a no reputation kind of a city. There's an interesting uh, letter from the Emperor Cicero to a fellow by the name of Pilo who was an extremely poor administrator. And and his letter, he rebukes this fellow. And he tells him what a mess he made and left after he tried to govern there in Thessalonica and how he sort of fled uh, to uh, Berea, you know. But even there, he was a mess. And and it's quite a letter, but it's interesting that uh, he, he makes mention of Berea as you know, the offbeat place. So they came to Berea and they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and then they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Paul, no doubt, was preaching the same message that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. And so they went home and they searched the scriptures that Paul was teaching them from. They they studied them to see if Paul was speaking the truth. Therefore, many of them believed. The diligent search brought to them the confirmation of the truth of Paul's preaching. I like what Chuck Missler says. Don't believe anything Chuck Missler says. (laughs) But be the Bereans. Go and search the scriptures. And I think that Chuck says a lot of things he doesn't believe. (laughs) Just to get you to search the scriptures. I think his intent is just to, you know, have you search diligently and find out, you know, is this truly scriptural? He's very inspiring and very challenging, as you know. So because they searched the scriptures diligently, many of them believed also of the honorable women, which were Greeks, and of the men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea. But Silas and Timothy stayed there at Berea while Paul was hustled out. (laughs) It's interesting (laughs) Paul was called of the Lord to go to Europe 
He starts out in Philippi. He's thrown in jail, beaten and thrown in jail. Goes to Thessalonica and they have to sort of secret him out at night because of the trouble that arose. Now he's in Berea and again, you know, creates some problems and has to leave Berea. It's like the little kid said, the New Testament ends with revolutions and it seems like it's filled with revolutions. Everywhere he preached, there was a revolution. But that's so true. It, it isn't the gospel bringing revolution to people's lives. I mean, what a change, what dramatic changes come when a person receives the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a revolution that goes on within your own life. So they that conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And Paul said to them, go back and tell Silas and Timothy to get down here in a hurry. So they went back and uh, with Paul's message to Silas and Timothy to meet him there in Athens. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city that was wholly given over to idolatry. Athens was the city of idols. It is said that they had more idols than people in Athens. They had, of course, were pantheistic, and so they had deified practically everything. They had the gods of war, the gods of peace, the gods of anger, the gods of love, the gods of uh, hate. Uh, they had gods for everything, every emotion that a person feels. They had a god for that emotion. Now, it is said that there was a great plague in Athens. And so they released in Athens herds of sheep. And wherever a sheep would stop, the idol of the God that was nearest to that, they would sacrifice that sheep to that God. They were trying to appease the God's to remove the plague. And if there were no idol near the place where the sheep stopped, then they would sacrifice that sheep to the unknown God. In case there's one out there we've missed. We don't want you to be offended. <laughs> and so uh, they had idols. In it. Well, Paul the city wholly given over to idolatry, and even to the present time, uh, the uh, great uh, temples, the ruins of the temple of Jupiter and all that are there are, are marvels to behold. The uh, Parthenon and, and the whole Areopagus is just a marvel to behold. So Paul saw this and he was stirred. He saw that people were searching, searching for God, but they were blind to the truth of God, the true and the living God. And yet there was a void that they were trying to fill 
And they were worshiping multitudes of different gods. Therefore, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with those that met with him. And then there were certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics who encountered him. And some of them said, what will this babbler say? And some, he seems to be setting forth some strange God because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is whereof you speak? For you bring certain strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all of the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Now, it used to be up in Los Angeles, they had a place called Pershing Square, downtown L.A., and that was sort of uh, the, the Mars Hill of L.A., and that uh, people gathered there and, and would would start expounding some belief and people would gather, crowds would gather all over Pershing Square and people would be arguing and some guy would be giving out his philosophy and other people would be questioning, tearing it down, contradicting. And we used to go down there just for amusement uh, to, to listen to all of the discussions that were going on and to the various uh, concepts and philosophical ideas that were being expressed. Now, the Epicureans were an interesting philosophy that, first of all, they believed that everything happened by chance. No design. They believed that death ended it all. It's all over when you die. Uh, they believed that there were gods but the gods were remote from this world and really didn't care about the world at all. Thus, they believed that pleasure was the chief end of man. And so they measured every experience by the amount of pleasure that it brought. They actually didn't mean fleshly and worldly or material pleasure, for the highest pleasure was the pleasure that brought no pain afterwards. And so much of the pleasures of the world leave pain afterwards. And so uh, they were looking for pure pleasure that leaves only a pleasurable feeling afterwards. Now the Stoics, they believed that everything was God that God was a fiery spirit, that the spirit grew blunt and dull in matter, but it was in everything. And what gave man life was that little spark of spirit, and it gave life to everything. They believed that everything was fated, that you couldn't change what was to be. Everything was fated because everything was of God. God was in everything. And thus, whatever happened, you're not to care. It, you know, you couldn't stop it. You couldn't help it. It's going to happen. 
So they were stoic. They um, believed that it was God's will and you had to accept it. There was nothing you could do about it. And they believed that the world went through cycles of development and then disintegration and then starting all over again. And so there were cycles. Much like the uh, Big Bang Theory that uh, we're in an expanding universe. We're in the... uh, But... uh, one day the whole thing will hit its apex and then the gravity will draw it back in again and it'll all be brought back into a small, tight little mass and then there'll be another explosion and you'll go through another 15 billion years of evolution and developing again. And So the Stoics, that's sort of the Stoic philosophy that there was the disintegration of everything and then it all starts over and... You have many, many cycles. So these are the people that were curious. They, the Athenians they had nothing to do but just stand around and bring new concepts and ideas. So Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, up there in the Areopagus, where you have a great view of the Agora, the marketplace down below of Athens with the large temples on either end of the marketplace, just above you, the Parthenon, and uh, the uh, Temple of Athena and all. And so in the midst of all of these idols, statues, looking down and seeing uh, the city with the many altars, and, and uh, Paul said, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. That's a poor translation. Paul is smarter than to just insult people. What Paul said was, I perceive that you are very religious. You're extremely religious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God whom therefore you ignorantly worship. But I would like to declare him to you. For he is the God that made the world and all of the things that are in it, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and of earth, and he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Now, some of the most marvelous temples ever built by men were right there. Paul was surrounded with them, and he is saying, the true God, the living God, the one who created the universe, doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. Neither is he worshipped with man's hands. The true God is not made with man's hands. The true God is the maker of man. Now, throughout the history of mankind, man has made idols to represent his God. And then he worshipped those idols. And in a sense, the people who lived in times gone by, back in Bible days, were more honest and open than we are today. Today man is deceived 
much more. Because man worships the same gods, but he doesn't make the idols anymore, and thus he doesn't realize that he is worshiping that god. They at least acknowledge, this is the master passion of my life. I worship sex. Now, they were honest about it. They, they had their goddess Aphrodite. They had their goddess of sex, Venus, Aphrodite. And, and they acknowledged, this is the God I worship. There was an honesty there. Now, people are worshiping sex today. But there's a dishonesty, there's a denial of it because you don't have an idol. There were those who worshiped pornography and they had their sexual exciting idols that were designed to arouse a person's sexual passions. They were honest about it. This is what I worship. This is what I live for. Today, there's a dishonesty. Guys will sit at their computers now and, oh, what an evil age that this stuff is available on internet and all. And, and people will sit there and they'll watch. And now the interaction, I saw on TV the other night some... Uh, documentary on stuff that can be gotten on the internet and, and, and people get into it and, and it captivates them. They get hooked on it. They get addicted to it and it becomes their God. They can't wait to go in and to dial in and to get in on the Junk that is there and get aroused and all through the pornography that's available. It's just one step further. It's a little bit beyond the X videos. And, but people are into it. And yet they deny that they worship it. But night after night, they can't wait to bring it onto the screen. There's a dishonesty there. You're not really honest with yourself because you didn't make an idol. Now, the ancient people, they were more honest. They were more open. Yes, this is what I'm into. This is what I worship. This is the, the God of my life. And there, there was at least an honesty there. So Paul is saying, though, that God isn't worshipped by man's hands. Man creates his own God. And he worships the God that he has made with his hands. But he said the true God isn't made with man's hands. The true God is the maker. The true God you worship ignorantly, the unknown God. I'd like to tell you about him. The God that made the world and all things therein. Seeing he is the Lord of heaven and of earth. He doesn't dwell in these temples that are made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. 
You can't give anything to God. (laughs) He doesn't need anything from you, but you need an awful lot from him. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. You depend upon God for life. He isn't dependent upon you. He is made of one blood, all nations of men. Now, the wonderful thing is that in Christ, there are no barriers of national identities or ethnic groups. God is made of one blood, all men. And though we may have different pigmentation in our skins. We are all one. And the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ is he breaks down the walls that divided men into ethnic groups. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all. I'm not really, you know, a white Anglo-Saxon Saxon. Caucasian or whatever. I'm a Christian. I have a whole new identity. I'm a Christian. And I, you know, I'm not of English and French and all that. I'm a Christian. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. And the old things are passed away. Everything becomes new. And I have a whole new nationality. I'm a Christian. I relate to him. And those who believe in him are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to realize that. I think that it is a tragedy that even yet in some of the churches there is a type of segregation that does exist. Paul says God is made of one blood all men to dwell upon the face of the earth and he has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations I mean God set the limits for you the the time that you're going to exist has been determined by God already he's made an appointment with me it's appointed unto man once to die now God knows exactly when I'm going to keep that appointment, how I'm going to keep it, under which circumstances I'm going to keep it. He hasn't let me know yet. But one day my appointment's going to come and I can't say, oh, wait a minute, I want to, you know, take care of this first. No, when it comes, it comes. With all of us, God has appointed the boundaries of our habitation. That they, and here's the purpose that God, that they might seek the Lord if by chance they might feel after him and find him, though he's really not very far from every one of us. God put within man that yearning for God. Man tries to substitute many things to fulfill that emptiness that he has. Only God can meet the real thirst in your life. Jesus said, if you thirst, come to me and drink. And not only will you be satisfied, your life will become like an overflowing cup out of your innermost being. 
there will flow rivers of living water. So that they should seek the Lord, if they might feel after him and find him, though he really isn't that far from you. For in him, Paul said, we live, we move, we have our being. I'm surrounded by God. David said, whether can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I descend into hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I flee to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you encompass me. In him we live, we move, we have our being. I think that this is one truth that we all need to become very cognizant of. God is with me at all times in all places. I never leave his presence. I cannot escape his presence. That was the mistake that Jonah made. He sought to flee from the presence of God. Can't do it. Impossible. And we need to be conscious of the presence of God. That's the problem. God is there. I'm not always conscious of his presence. And thus, sometimes I do things that if I were really conscious of his presence, I wouldn't do them. You know, it said concerning Moses that he looked this way, he looked that way, he saw no man, and so he killed the Egyptian. <laughs> he should have looked up. <laughs> and so many times we, we, we lose that consciousness of the presence of God. But if we only could maintain that in him we live, we move, we have our being, I'm, I cannot escape him then we would be a lot more careful about how we responded, how we reacted, what we said, what we did. I wouldn't have to preach holiness if you only had the continual consciousness of the presence of God because that in itself would be the stimulus for true holiness. And Paul then quotes certain of their poets. He said, certain of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, your poet was right, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by the art of man's devices. You ought not to think that God is like these forms that they've made out of silver and gold and stone. They're the work of man's hands. Paul affirms that we are the offspring of God. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, when God created man, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And so God created man, formed his body out of the dust of the earth, breathed into him the breath of life. Man became a living spirit. So that I was created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. But we read that man fell from that image by sin. So that looking around today, you cannot see God's intent in creation for man. Except that in that man who has committed his life fully to God in fellowship and service 
you begin to see God's intent. But man is not a highly evolved animal. He is a fallen form of God. He was created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, and from that he has fallen. So the missing link is not between us and the animal kingdom. The missing link is between man and God. And God sent his son to be that missing link. It is through Jesus that I can be linked again to God. It is through Jesus that I become conformed into the image from which man fell because of sin, into the image of God. And the purpose of God is to bring us back as sons of God into communion and into fellowship with him to restore for you that which man lost when he fell from the image of God. And to this end, Jesus came. When Job was going through all of his miseries, his friends that came to comfort him, one of them said, Job, just get right with God and things will be okay. And Job said, I look at the heavens that he created and I realize how vast he is. And I realize that I'm really nothing. I'm down here on this little planet. I'm nothing. Who am I to plead my case before God? And he said, there's no daysman between us that can lay his hand on us both. Job saw the dilemma. The, the gap between the infinite God and finite man, man was so great that there was no way that finite man could reach the infinite God. And that is the weakness and the failure of every religious system that begins with an earth-based finite man trying to reach out and touch the infinite God. Impossible. And thus every religious system is doomed for failure. Christianity is the opposite of a religion. For it isn't reaching out to God but it is an infinite God reaching down to touch the finite man. Now, again, you're talking about reason. You're talking about considering things. That's reasonable. I can see how that an infinite God could easily touch the finite man, but I can also see the impossibility of a finite man touching the infinite God. And thus, the reason for the failure of religions, but where Christianity brings us together. Job said, I need someone that can lay his hand on us both. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God and all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made and in him was light and that light, life when the life was the light of man. Now, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John said, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched. For the word 
was made flesh. So, I need someone, Job said, that can touch God and touch me. Someone that can be the link between the two. And the cry of Job is answered in Jesus Christ. In the form of God, not thought at robbery to be equal with God, yet he came in the likeness of man. He can touch me at the same time he can touch the Father. He's the missing link, and he brings us back to the fullness, to the sense. You're looking for roots? Don't look at an ape. <laughs> you, with Moses, where he failed, look up. You'll find the missing link. It's between you and God. God didn't make you an animal. God made you in his likeness. And when you again come into the likeness of God, then your life will be rich and fulfilled. David said, I will be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doesn't, doesn't yet appear what we're going to be, but when he appears, we're going to be like him. Restored, you see, into the image of the creator. So God isn't represented by these images of silver, gold, stone. They are graven by the art of man's device. And, of course, you look today at the statuary and all of, of Greece, and it's marvelous, the you, you marvel at the, the ability to uh, form these images and these likenesses. That the, uh, it, it actually brings you into an a awe of man's capacities. They don't really bring you a consciousness of God, but they, you think, wow, that artist was really outstanding. That's why I like the simple structure of the, you know, what is it, just wooden. You know, we're not drawn to, to man's artistic capacities or ornateness because we're not here to be drawn to man, but we're here to be drawn to the living God who created all things. Now, Paul said, and the times of this ignorance, that is, man's ignorance of God, God winked at. But now he commands that all men everywhere to repent. Now that Jesus has come, the gospel to be preached to all the world, it begins with man repenting, turning from his rebellion against God, turning from his sinful practices to be filled with the Spirit of God and to be restored into the image of God by the Holy Spirit working in us. We all, with open faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed from glory to glory into that same image by His Spirit working in us. And God has appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness. Now, Note that. He'll judge the world in righteousness. What about those people living in Africa that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they live and they die and they've never heard the gospel? What God's, He's going to judge the world in righteousness. But what's God good? I don't know, but when he does, I'm going to say, righteous, Lord. 
That's so perfect. That's so righteous. Because he's going to judge the world in righteousness. By that man, that is Jesus, whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men that he hath raised him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They said, ah, come on. Others said, we will hear again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him. And they believed, among which was uh, Dionysius and the Areopagite. Uh, the Areopagite was a, uh, a special group. They were a select group of men. They were considered really sort of the intellectual giants of the day. And Dionysius was one of those, Dionysius. And also Demarius and others with him. Now note the varied reactions to the gospel that Paul preached. Some mocked. Some procrastinated. I said, well, I'd like to hear more about this sometime. And others believed. It's like Jesus said, when the seed is sown, some falls on the wayside, some among thorns, some on stony ground, and some on good soil. It's always that way. The reactions of people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The important thing that you need to note is what is your reaction? Are you among those that sort of mock? Or are you those who are sort of putting off the decision? Well, maybe someday. Or are you of those who have believed and committed yourself? To faith in Jesus Christ. It's important, you know, because one day God is going to judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 18 as we continue our journey through the New Testament. Now, we closed out last week with Paul there in Athens, speaking to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill, declaring to them the story of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. There was mixed reactions. Some of them mocked. Some of them said, we'll hear more of this later. And some believed. And, and that is pretty general, the reception of the gospel. There are some that believe. There are some that procrastinate. And then there are those who receive it. And uh, thus was the case in Athens. So after these things, Paul departed from Athens and he came to Corinth. Now, as we said this morning, Corinth was an extremely wicked city. Corinth is right there at the Isthmus of Greece. From the Aegean to the Adriatic Sea, it's less than five miles. So that in those days, 
when you are shipping goods from the east to the west, from the major centers of the east to Rome, it was much better, much easier to bring the goods to the port of Chensria, which uh, was the port of Corinth, and to unload the ships, take the cargo the five miles overland to the Adriatic Sea, put them on another ship, and thus take them on to Rome. Uh, It was several hundred miles to go around Greece, and you had to go through the uh, Cape of Malia, which was an extremely uh, treacherous uh, bit of water to navigate. And so if a sailor could uh, keep from having to navigate uh, the uh, Cape of Malia, he would definitely prefer to do that. Of course, it saved uh, weeks of travel time and uh, was just a much better route to go. Nero attempted to build a canal uh, to connect the two, but uh, it was stone was too hard and they gave up on it. But later a canal has been built uh, by the engineers who did the Suez Canal. They went from the Suez Canal over and they did the Corinthian Canal and they carved out this uh, great uh, canal there that connects the Adriatic with the Aegean and it is adjacent to uh, the ancient city of Corinth. Corinth was noted for its wickedness, for the drunkenness whenever they would portray a man of Corinth in the dramas. He would always be drunk. Uh, It was just uh, endemic to uh, Corinth. They said concerning anyone who lived a very uh, debased kind of life that he lives like a Corinthian. Uh, It was sort of a uh, proverb almost. And uh, it was uh, at this place that Paul now comes with the gospel. There he found a certain Jew named Aquila, who was born in Pontus, but had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the Roman emperor, had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and Paul came unto them, because he was of the same craft, and he abode with them and wrought with them or worked for them by for they were by occupation tent makers so in 49 AD Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome thus this couple Aquila and Priscilla came to Corinth from Rome Paul arrived here at about the year 54, so shortly after uh, the uh, Jews were expelled from Rome. Aquila and Priscilla, an interesting couple. We meet them again at the end of the chapter when Paul leaves Corinth to go to Jerusalem for the celebration of one of the major feasts. He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him as far as Ephesus. They remained in Ephesus as Paul 
went on to Jerusalem. When Apollos came to Ephesus, as we'll get at the end of the chapter, Priscilla and Aquila shared with him more fully the richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, get this straight now, uh, he declares that with those greeting them, that Priscilla and Aquila greeted them. Later, when Paul wrote to Rome, one year later, he tells them to greet Priscilla and Aquila. So ultimately, they moved from uh, Ephesus on back to Rome, where they had originally sort of begun. And uh, when Paul writes his last letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy to greet Prisca and Aquila. Uh, So they were workers together with Paul in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul, when he came to Corinth, no doubt looked for a job. And he was by trade a tent maker. Now in those days, every rabbi was expected to have a trade. And it was just uh, always uh, with a Jew, no matter what profession they might have, they were always taught a trade. The idea being that you can always fall back on your trade uh, to support yourself. And so it was important to them that everyone have a trade. In the area of Tarsus from which Paul came, Uh, There was a goat that had a special kind of wool uh, from which they made a material called cilium, which was an excellent material for tents. And so it was only natural that Paul uh, take up the trade as a tent maker when he was just a very young boy because he did leave uh, in his teenage from Tarsus to go to Jerusalem to go to college. And so... Uh, Paul had taken up the trade of a tent maker and he was working with Priscilla and Aquila uh, as a tent maker there in Corinth. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. There were many Greeks who would attend synagogue. They were attracted to the Jewish religion especially the women, because it did espouse a purity. Now, in the Greek culture, uh, the wives really didn't play an important part. According to the Greeks, every successful man should have a girlfriend to go with him in his social engagements. He should have a concubine for his sexual pleasures, and he should have a wife to bear his legitimate children. But that's what the wife was looked upon, just one to bear the legitimate children while the husband, uh, you know, ran around. So, uh, and she, you know, someone has to watch the kids. So uh, the husband... Uh, looked upon the wife as just one that watched the children, bore his legitimate children so he could party around with his girlfriends. Thus, 
the women were attracted to the Jewish faith, which taught the faithfulness in marriage and a commitment in marriage and how uh, that a husband should be faithful to his wife. And uh, they were drawn to that from the Grecian culture and the Roman culture, which really looked upon woman uh, and a wife as just one step above a slave. Uh, they were considered sort of a chattel, a, a possession, but they were without privileges. And so they were attracted to the Jewish faith. And so in the synagogues, there would be those Greeks who were looking for a higher standard of living, as well as the Jews who gathered every Sabbath. Now, when Silas and Timotheus had come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. He had been teaching every week in the synagogue. And uh, now that Silas and Timothy have arrived from Macedonia, they had brought an offering from the churches or from the church of Philippi unto Paul. When Paul wrote his letter to the church in Philippi, in the last chapter, he thanks them for the offering that they sent to him. And he mentions how that at the first, none of the churches helped him except the church in Philippi. And how they were faithful in supporting Paul in his missionary journeys. And Paul said, I thank you for your support. Not that I am in a particular need, but I desire that fruit might abound to your accounts. And so when Silas and Timothy came with the uh, offering from uh, the church of Philippi, Paul then began in the synagogue to declare to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And when they opposed themselves, that is, they got into big arguments with each other, and they blasphemed, he shook his raiment, and he said unto them, Your blood be upon you, upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul always took the gospel to the Jew first. In Romans 1.16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. But Paul went to the Jew first. When they rejected, he went to the Greeks. return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Acts in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on sharing the gospel, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Acts 17 through 18 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. 
Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. So we pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of Paul the Apostle that stands to us as an inspiration of getting out and sharing your truth with others and not really being concerned about the persecution that often follows the proclaiming of the gospel. But Lord, we will be bold in our witness for you knowing, Lord, that you alone are able to save men from sin and to give to them eternal life. And without you, they are hopelessly lost. So, Lord, may we be the bearers of the good news to a lost world in which we live. Let our lives, Lord, be a witness of you. As you, by your Spirit, change us and transform us into your image, Lord, let the light of the love of the gospel shine forth in this darkened world through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Lord, I believe in you. I'll always believe in you. It is by faith that you've been walking into one level of spiritual maturity to another. Faith is the key to a successful Christian life. That is why the Word of God tells us Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It was faith that led Abraham into the land of promise. It was faith that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. It was faith that enabled Peter to step out of the boat and to walk on water. The question is, what might faith do in you? To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, Faith, or to preview a chapter for free online, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673.